I've I've dropped. Let me let me put it this way: I've dropped this microphone multiple times in the last <laughs> week. Well, that E835 is designed to be dropped. It is a stage microphone that uh, <laughs> has like a fucking lifetime or ten year like actually decent warranty on it or something. Well, like good because it's hit the ground several times recently. Yeah, I mean that's really. <laughs> That's really how you can tell the legit podcasters from the ones who have too much institutional backing to make sense for very long is that a real podcaster will use a stage microphone that is designed to withstand the abuse of an idiot singer who eats cigarettes every morning (laughs) going up there and swinging it around by the XLR cable until it ends up in the fucking stage lights. But... (laughs) The, the ones who have the institutional backing will show up and they have their fancy they coming their down from the giant boom stand radio RE20. style mic. Oh, yeah. You know, or, or even some fancier boutique model that their friend who's a sound guy for NPR told them to order. So they blew <laughs> $2,500 on a single microphone that they don't even use yeah, to, this to is mic a, this their is... guests. They just use it for themselves. I this saw is this a... on the Tiny Desk concert. I thought you'd like it. It was only $1,700. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this U87, uh, like, vintage remake is, uh, yeah, just just really sounds so good. And I'm just like, yo, uh, I don't I'm know. Gonna, We're fine. I'm going to be real with you, Chief. I've been podcasting on the same microphone for over five years, and I still don't know if it's an SM57 or 58. Not a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a 57 know. from here. Your guess is better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, as long as we're going ballistic, uh, I may as well do an intro for the show. work stoppage everyone my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we're an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much if you support us on patreon it really does go a long way hop in the discord if you want more show content message us on patreon if you want stickers and leave a five-star review on apple podcasts if you want to help the show a little bit more and i mean just as a preview you mentioned content oh boy is there going to be a lot of fucking content because i've been doing a lot of writing we have unionized the content mill folks yeah oh man there is yeah we're we i know we took a a little bit of time off but like that that was in order to make sure that we can keep bringing amazing episodes i needed sleep too i hadn't slept good in four months (laughs) (laughs) yeah well let's get started uh so we're gonna be doing a follow-up on a story that we covered a couple weeks ago when we discussed the longest adjunct faculty strike in u.s history at columbia college in chicago and i mean finally on december 17th after 49 days on strike a tentative agreement was reached and shortly after they actually approved the tentative agreement to become a contract nearly unanimously the adjuncts had gone on strike at columbia college at the end of october in response to moves by the school's administration to slash courses and increase class sizes by up to 50 percent which was i mean it's just it was a it was a wild amount of 
labor intensification and speed up, which would have forced the adjunct faculties to basically just do more work for the exact same pay. And I mean, potentially also costing many adjuncts their jobs with the courses that they were teaching eliminated. And I mean... Well, and this whole thing is also, it's extremely symptomatic of, like, the broader problem in education as a business. Mm -hmm. Like, it's funny, I feel like there's a lot of people who, the the first reaction when you start, like, seeing how, like, education is decaying around the country would be to be like, why are we running it this way? Why aren't we running it like, you know, like we used to run it, like a public good? And, you know, you get to the next level of understanding, like, well because capitalism inevitably does this to everything it's like if left unchecked it will commodify all things Mm -hmm. well it's like Um, how you know how all organisms eventually become crab all or all corporations under capitalism or organizations eventually either become real estate or finance institutions and that's it well and those two things are intertwined anyway deeply because to get the capital for the real estate funds you usually are going through the finance sector we're really splitting crustaceans here (laughs) yeah Yeah. uh become a patron for more great content like this but (laughs) but just like on that it's like and that but that the thing is in that same vein it's also mirroring a lot of what we see in other sorts of institutions where you have like as a any sort of capitalist venture, you know, continues to develop, it's constantly looking for ways to drive down costs so that it can continue to maintain its profits because as competition continues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's, though, I think, you know, what we look at is when we see this scourge of adjunct professors, which is the vast majority of professors, by the way, like tenure track, full-time uh, jobs are few and far between. But the, and that's exactly why we see this is because if you if you can you have all of these people graduating from grad school and you have no fucking <laughs> available options for them to go into actual professorships and, and research positions and all these things that would you know benefit society. Um, instead, you're like, okay, great, we've managed to create a labor pool many times larger than the available jobs. We can use this for great evil. So, yeah, it's like the, the, the classic saying, those uh, who aren't allowed to do uh, are forced to teach. <laughs> well, but the thing they want to do is teach. I don't think that works here. But... Oh, I was thinking like uh, like you were saying like research and other and other things like the well, jobs but I, related yeah, but to I, their I, I, I mean, I also think, though, that like, I don't know. I think that saying, while funny, uh, belittles the important uh, I know, uh, I was just, role just, uh, of, of the teaching profession. But no, I was just going to say it's because like you talk because people will talk about, you know, you hear people on the Internet talk about like out of touch college professors and stuff. And it's like. You do know most college professors are people like this. They're adjuncts making maybe $15, $20 an hour mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, barely scraping by. And that's how you get all these administrator salaries of like $3 million a year well, for people who don't do a goddamn thing. Well, it's also just as a side note, the idea of out of touch college professors is fucking hilarious to me and always has been because it's like out of touch with who? They interact with college students all day. So you mean out of touch with you, some weird middle-aged <laughs> freak who hasn't updated their politics in 40 years. And that and that's where we start to see you know those those like confused class positions sometimes mm-hmm. with those few like tenure positions that do actually make quite a bit of money and you know I think we saw the UC strike was a perfect example of this where like students actually went and mapped it out and they were able to find an a very strong trend line 
between how much money you made and how likely you were to scab. Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I mean, guess we should continue the story on that note because uh, we'll we'll start with a little bit more on the deal, which I mean addressed the uh con- the way that the cuts were in at least some ways. Because firstly, at least fifty of the three hundred and seventeen courses that were set to be cut next spring will be restored, and adjuncts whose classes uh ended up being eliminated or are teaching fewer uh, sections of classes in the spring will actually receive compensation for those classes that were cut. It also creates a class size committee and advocacy council on adjunct faculty affairs so that adjuncts have actually a say in the majority of changes in the workplace, which I think as we've seen in many different university level uh, struggles, these boards are created partially to actually you know, forward demands, but also as a means to say, hey, we've been talking about this. So at the next bargaining session, they have a lot more leverage to make sure to actually get what they're lo- what they're trying to, you know, secure when it comes to their jobs. And I mean, when it comes to job security provisions, they, uh, they actually secured seniority to guarantee adjuncts a minimum number of class sections uh, to, and protect those positions. Uh, the guaranteed schedules are pegged to enrollment, which, I mean, means that if more students enroll, adjuncts are guaranteed more classes, which is uh, actually really important considering what Dan was just talking about with the the tendency to, uh, you know, just try to make the most money with the you know least amount of work and basically intensify the labor of these adjunct faculty and it doesn't matter if the class sizes go up they would just uh you know increase tuition class sizes would go up and guess who gets all that money the administration well that i mean yeah well that's one of the things that's also very funny about like the way college is portrayed in the media here and and like the reality because i think there's been this trend where there's this idea that as college gets more expensive, it must get more lux. Like it must get it. Like the idea that all college campuses are just like a four-year, uh, like uh, playground for again for elite, out-of-touch children. And that may be the case for a segment of students in the Ivy League. And like that's yeah. about it for most people. Like stuff hasn't gotten better because school has gotten more expensive. In fact, in a lot of cases, like here, you have administrators, despite the fact that tuition goes up, slashing courses, slashing what the school offers, doubling class sizes, making the life of these teachers, who are actually you know, the only reason your school functions, uh, making their lives hell. And it really, it's so... It, there's this disconnect between what's portrayed as, oh, this is expensive, and therefore everybody involved is just out of touch and having a great time, to this is expensive in the same way groceries are expensive now. The mm-hmm. groceries didn't get any fucking better. In a lot of cases, they may have gotten worse. They're just more expensive because the rapacious monsters who control the monopoly of where this all comes from are just like, we want more money. I mean, so yeah. many schools in the United States have gutted their um, institutions to the point where they're like kind of on the verge of no longer being able to get accredited mm-hmm. as institutions exactly. of higher learning. And I don't know what that could possibly be a symptom of, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mystifies me. Yeah. Well, and I mean, uh, talking a little bit about money, the new contract includes 16% raises over the four years of the contract, a ratification bonus and a supplement to the health care benefit, which is 
you know, I guess standard. It's a pretty standard way that uh, a lot of contracts come down. I guess I don't know if uh, we're expecting to see major inflation uh, in the next couple of years. Quite possibly. But, Nobody uh, even professional economists do not know what inflation is because it's an aggregate term but trying to predict it <laughs> trying to predict it is like deranged 16 percent raise over four years is pretty respectable but it's it i think it's not unfair to argue that that might just be a cost of living adjud- uh, adjustment what? by the time the contract is played all the way through and that's yeah. actually a spot where i think that the brits at least in their discourse are a little bit ahead of us because it's mm-hmm. like we shouldn't I frankly I don't even think we should use the word inflation because it's been so mystified as to be completely meaningless. Yes. And we should just keep hammering on the phrase cost of living crisis. Correct. Because that tells you exactly what you're talking about and then you don't have to get into these stupid nitpicky arguments of like, "Oh, actually inflation went down even though the price of XYZ thing went up." It's like, "I don't give a shit about that. What I care mm-hmm. about is the price of stuff people need to live is way too fucking high and their wages aren't going up." And so that's where I think like uh, really emphasizing cost of living, which I think, and we're, we're we're seeing, you know, we've been seeing more and more workers and in their strikes hammering on that, and I think that's a better way for us to get our point across. Well, and that hey, kind of particularity smart. gives you something to really rally around. I mean, I know his campaign didn't go anywhere, but people still say the rent is too damn high mm-hmm. all the time because that kind of phrasing is something that really can't be co-opted. <laughs> yeah, it's it's short, it's to the point, it's effective. There's really no other meaning it could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think that that is a really good point and that shift in rhetoric is actually one that it really puts it in a more correct perspective when it comes to the interests of the working class. And so, that yeah, that's a, that's a really great thing to point out. But uh, Diana Valera president of the Columbia College Faculty Union told in these times in regards to this, quote, the only way that we really have academic freedom is through job security. With job security, you have the ability to voice concerns about the quality of education, about grading, about curriculum, and you can do it without fear of losing your job, end quote. And I I think that that quote right there really shows the importance of things like the seniority system, also making sure that the workers are paid, even if they're class are cut the board in which they are able to actually voice the concerns over the changes in work conditions tying also to the uh, enrollment rate I mean all of those things are related to job security and it's what allows these teachers to do their job well mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so congratulations to these adjunct faculty on their successful strike uh, one, breaking the record for longest adjunct strike twice now in the past year. Uh, love to see. I think this is good. I mean, this is going to be one of my easiest predictions for next year. But like it, I think we're just going to see more and more and more specifically adjunct faculty strikes because like the cost of living isn't going down and their wages are just way too fucking low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Their wages are as dated as the references I'm about to make to introduce the next story. Everybody's favorite Weird Al song and the city where Bugs Bunny took a wrong turn, Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, unfortunately, the current reference for Albuquerque is Breaking Bad, but I, I think that yours is much better. <laughs> Breaking yeah, Bad I, is annoying. <laughs> I like, I like <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, this is an industry where um, maybe we haven't seen people making a lot of predictions because in banking, there unfortunately hasn't been a whole lot of movement on the labor front. But we have seen some changes in that because just a few weeks ago, we discussed the move by workers at Wells Fargo branches in New Mexico and Alaska, which I thought was interesting, to unionize. And we've already got some results. So on Wednesday, December the 20th, we saw workers at the Albuquerque branch vote five to three in favor of joining the CWA as Wells Fargo Workers United. This is the first union win at a major bank in decades, and workers hope that it will inspire others around the country to join them. We heard from Sabrina Perez, one of the many workers in Albuquerque, saying in a statement, quote, Our victory today is the first of many to come. Despite Wells Fargo's aggressive attempts to dissuade us, we are igniting a fire and showing our colleagues across the industry that not only is change possible, it is within reach, end quote. And since their initial announcement, two other locations in Atwater, California and Daytona Beach, Florida, have also filed to join the CWA. These are all like party towns, aren't they? (laughs) Well, I was thinking like they've really like created uh, almost like a bullseye. Like you have the far north, we've got the the south of the United States, and then you've got the west and the southeast. I mean, they just need they need a they need a store in Gary, Indiana. Yeah, and, and a store in Bangor, Maine. Yeah, <laughs> and then they'll have the whole area covered with That's right. like uh, mid mid to small cities. <laughs> I mean, Bangor's not a city, but uh, <laughs> no. I mean, this is this is one of those things where I feel like this sort of story. Some people from maybe our end of the political spectrum might be a bit less uh, eager to cover because it's in the financial sector, and of course. Certainly, of all of the fields that should be nationalized, the banks are one of the first. Um, but that, I think it's a, an important bellwether because it's just like, look, the banks have just an absolutely unfathomable amount of money and capital, which are quite the same. Um, and yet, <laughs> the penetration of union consciousness among workers has gotten so far that even workers at bank branches and yes, of course, bank tellers are not the same thing as like people who are doing like wealth management. But the fact that, you know, the push for a union, the understanding that like collective action is the way through which workers improve their conditions, that that's gotten all the way into Wells Fargo offices, I think tells us a lot about the cultural shift that the current labor upsurge is really making in the U.S., oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because for a second you're like, wait, you want to unionize the Lehman Brothers? Right, right. But it's like, you know, it's not exactly that. And, you know, a lot of people who do work in finance or banking are just like low level employees and Mm -hmm. are not paid, you know, enough to survive and aren't in that industry because they're career criminals like their bosses, but because it was the best job available. Yeah. Like the, 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 the person who is helping you, who's the teller at your local Wells Fargo branch is not like, the rep is not a physical manifestation of a representation no. of finance capital any more than a warehouse worker at Amazon is a physical representation of Jeff Bezos. <laughs> no, they're like a barista for money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah <laughs> and honestly, you know, some overlap in their conditions as service workers. So we mm-hmm. I mean, both so, have to deal with, you know, the worst type of human being, the customer. 
Oh, and especially in banking, you have to deal with the small business owner, which has got to yes. be a nightmare unto itself. Oh. <laughs> I know. It's, it, it, I don't even want to think about it. But <laughs> another thing I don't want to think about is that, unfortunately, the same day um, that we, we saw this advancement for the workers in Albuquerque, the workers in Bethel, Alaska, withdrew their election petition after union busting at the store made it clear to organizers that the election would not be successful. The NLRB recently agreed with ULPs filed by workers at Wells Fargo call centers, including one in Hillsboro, Oregon, where managers tore down union flyers from break rooms and threatened pro-union workers with discipline. So there is already kind of an awareness that this pattern of behavior is happening at the NLRB. But also, like, if you were if you're at the NLRB, you should know that this pattern of behavior is just every employer ever I, yeah. in American history. <laughs> and I think that legally there's an important argument for pulling an election because it's, mm-hmm. I believe, and th- it, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, and if you really know this better than I do, but if you lose the election, you have to wait a year to refile. Yes. But if you pull your election, you could refile in three months, six months, once yeah. you've regained your footing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and also, I know that when we first talked about this story, the, sto- the conditions in Bethel, Alaska were definitely very unique, because they pointed out that it's like, they actually make decent money, but that's not, like... But that's only when you compare it to here because the cost of living in Bethel, Alaska is so incredibly high. Yeah, people are paying $16 for a head of broccoli because they can't grow it anywhere near there. Exactly. They have to like fly in all their groceries and stuff. So it was this weird thing where if you just looked at the salary and compared it with everywhere else, you'd be like, why would these people possibly need a union? And it's like, well, like you said, it's like if every trip to the grocery store is $300, like mm-hmm. a slightly higher salary is going to get eaten up real fast. But so but I am I'm sure also that that creates a very I mean, it's certainly a, a unique organizing environment because it's also got to like everybody is kind of got to I have to imagine kind of knows everybody could. Mm hmm. You're not really going a lot of places. <laughs> I mean, I don't know a lot about Bethel, but Alaska has one city where like 95% of the residents all live in the same apartment building. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, like the 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 U.S. attempt at like uh, 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 one of those like giant uh, apartment buildings that Khrushchev built a million of in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, it honestly looks pretty badass. I just wouldn't want to move to Alaska to live in it. Um, but <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I guess uh, Wells Fargo's worker... I keep wanting to pluralize Wells Fargo. This is I'm classic Aldi's syndrome. <laughs> Wells Fargo workers helped blow the whistle on the company for opening accounts in members' names without their knowledge back in 2016, which resulted in massive fines, but no real accountability for the company's criminal malfeasance, which is a trend we see all the time in capitalism, but especially finance capitalism. And it is unsurprising, of course, then that such a company would retaliate against its workers who were showing any form of dissent or independence. So it's going to be really interesting, especially in the wake of like how flagrant Starbucks union busting has been to see what kind of shape this takes as Wells Fargo continues their anti-union kind of campaign here. It would yeah. be really cool to see, you know, a a more like worker centered, like a uh, working class centered ideology in some of these workers that could uh, be more likely to whistleblow that sort of situation. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's a little uh, idealistic thinking, but uh, I would love to see it either way. Well, yeah, unions you- provi- provide the kind of legal resources you need as a whistleblower. So, I mean... Although if you do your job too well as a whistleblower, you end up being the person who revealed the Panama Papers, and then they blow you up with a car bomb. That is yeah. true. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, but, um, dark. And then no one is ever held accountable, and that story gets buried, and no one ever talks about it again. Um, but 
anyways, congratulations. But, you know, all that discussion about, you know, the repression and everything still congratulations to the workers at Albuquerque. Uh, really hoping that this is the first of many victories. Editor's note, uh, as you might be able to tell, there was a little bit of an issue with Dan's mic before this, but we are getting it fixed right here. All right. So following up on that victory, uh, we've also got to talk about the Teamsters who, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that workers at uh, DHL in northern Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati, had gone on strike. These are workers at DHL's biggest air hub in the U.S., uh, going on strike just before Christmas in order to really push the company to actually negotiate with them because these workers had unionized for the first time back in April with the Teamsters and had been fighting for a first contract for months with the company refusing to budge, forcing them to strike. And finally, after 12 days on the picket lines, the company agreed to sign a contract with better wages and benefits and workplace safety improvements. Unfortunately, we don't have like a ton of the details, so I can't really break down everything, but we did in the Teamster statement on the end of their strike uh, hear from Colin Snell, a local 100 member who said, quote, this tentative agreement is a big win and provides us with a future we can look forward to. I want to thank my fellow Teamsters throughout the country who are in the trenches with us. All Teamsters united in a common cause help make this possible, end quote. Hell yeah. Yeah, so just wanted to touch base on that one and shout out to the DHL Teamster workers. But in addition, moving on into our our, our news stories for the week, uh, I mean, kind of a new story, unfortunately, kind of a continuing segment on this show has been uh, tracking the way that workers have been standing up against the ongoing uh, genocide in Palestine. And so in addition to the U.S. and Israel continuing to be more and more isolated on the world as pariahs uh, for their continuing horrors, uh, more and more mainstream organizations have also been getting on board the call for a permanent ceasefire and an end to occupation in Palestine. So, Which, you know, it's about time with the uh, numbers being reported of 29,000 people dead or missing. Yeah, I mean it's in, it's it's like well, and those numbers it's the the that's the thing. It's like you had all the the horror junkies at the beginning of the war like being like, "Oh, these numbers aren't real. They're from Hamas and all mm-hmm. this horseshit." When really what it is is that the numbers are higher than that. Those are the numbers that are confirmed because like we have individuals associated with them. But the indiscriminate bo- bombing campaign by the, I mean, indiscriminate seems, it's like, that's the word I use to be like, they're bombing civilians, but it's not indiscriminate. It's intentional bombing yeah. of civilians. Mm-hmm. But like, Targeted, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, it, it, the number is certainly even higher than that. So it's like, we're really talking about two, three more percentage of the entire population. Um, and so, you know, more and more workers' organizations have thankfully been, been joining the fight against this. Uh, on Thursday, December 21st, New York City unions, including UAW Region 9A, the American Postal Workers Union, the Laundry Workers Center, the ALU, and the UE, marched in New York City to demand a ceasefire. And the march also included some rank-and-file members of unions whose national leadership still refuses to call for a ceasefire, like the UFCW, the RWDSU, also joined the march as well, alongside organizations like uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace. And so... During the march, workers demanded New York politicians join the call for a ceasefire and vote against any further aid to Israel. Workers also pointed to the massive influence wielded by reactionary organizations like AIPAC, 
uh, amongst many supposedly uh, progressive Democrats. And they were like projecting the amounts of money taken uh, by each one of these uh, politicians from APAC and other reactionary Zionist organizations. And uh, in a statement, the the union said, uh, quote, but we will not let them ignore this growing working class movement. Hundreds of thousands of regular people have taken to the streets, jammed the phone lines and inboxes of their representatives, stopped traffic, staged sit-ins and more to demand peace and justice. We demand our New York senators call for an immediate and lasting ceasefire vote no on the $14 billion aid deal, and refuse far-right APAC contributions. We will continue to march, protest, disrupt, and fight until we end this genocide, end quote. And I mean, that it's really important that that sort of explicit call and language is used because with all of the tone policing around the actual protests themselves on whether or not you can say things like to the from the river to the sea or even use the term genocide is so disingenuous and just meant to demobilize any sort of actual like discussion of this incredibly important issue we cannot shy away from actually calling the shit out for what it actually is and it is absolutely genocide well now they'll, they'll try to tell you that anything that you do is like inappropriate i i saw people saying that pointing out apac funding of american politicians was somehow like an ancient form of anti-semitism and it's just like i i don't even know what logic you're trying to operate on anymore well i mean to bust down a few of those people always bring bring this out where I think part of this is a is there's a obsession among middle class liberals about there's this idea that if they can form the perfect argument that it will magically convert everybody to their idea and therefore mm-hmm. if you leftist have not already formed the perfect argument that every middle class liberal can top on board with that you're hurting your own cause because what you really need to be doing is not like protesting or marching or doing things that actually do anything. You need to be formulating the the perfect rhetorical line because like, like, yes, focusing entirely on the idea that like the Israel lobby controls America. Yeah. That does get into some anti-Semitic territory, Mm -hmm. but criticizing APAC and the massive, the uh, genuinely massive influence that it has is not anti-Semitic. It's it's only when you essentialize it into this idea that Israel controls the United States and not the correct thing, which is the other way around, that Israel is an imperial satellite of the United States, uh, and, and like that you really get it. But it's it, it's it's like any of the colonial vassals of the U.S. It's a it's a reinforcing cycle. Like they Israeli politicians understand that their entire colonial project only exists because of the U.S. and therefore they find it in their interest to expend large amounts of money to influence individual politicians in the U.S. and make sure that they're like, hey, you know, this is for your imperial interest too, buddy. So don't don't forget it and keep sending us money. And so. But it's that at the same time you also hear the people being like, oh, why would you block a highway? That's the worst way to convince people of the, mm-hmm. that what you're doing is right. And it's like, buddy, that's not the purpose of blocking the highway. The purpose of blocking the highway is to tell people this is not going away and things are going to be annoying and shitty for you until the government changes what it's doing. So it's in your interest too, person who's been trying to ignore the fucking genocide that's been going on, to also care about this and to also press for this to end. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, also, that's really just a a kind of a lie as well, because those sorts of actions do actually get the word out. I mean, they they yeah. really they really are effective in in many ways, including slowing capital. 
which is the main facilitator of all of these fucking these fucking things going on well and i mean ultimately like for those of us in the united states like obviously there really isn't anything that we could where we're at right now with the organization like we, we can't like physically you know throw ourselves in the gears of imperialism and prevent it from working the machine is gigantic uh and the the we are not quite organized enough for that however the massive pressure that we can place on politicians through continuing actions is important because the mo- number one thing that the genocidal Joe Biden regime wants to happen with this right now is for people to stop talking about it, is for the pressure on him to go down so that in their minds, people will forget about this in the next nine months before the election and that you know, the massive toll to his, you know, popularity and support that he's taken for the 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 support and aiding and abetting this genocide will go away as people get afraid of Trump. And so that is really one of the reasons marches like this and exactly their last line, we will continue to march, protest, disrupt and fight is so important. It's like, that's why, like, I know some people are like, we've been doing this for months and it's not having results. And I would argue... It is. Look it at the fact is. that the U.S. and the and Israel are the only countries still willing to back this, and those countries are getting ever more isolated every single day. You've, I mean, watching the Iraq War, for instance, it took years to force the media to change their tone on the U.S. invasion. How many times has the U.S. media and the ideological state apparatus had to reshift its? propaganda in the last three months alone like just look look how long it took them just on the fucking ukraine proxy war project Mm -hmm. to admit that that what they were doing was fucked up it took like a year and a half for that like they have had to change their propaganda line like half a dozen times in just the last couple of months so like this stuff has an impact a real one that matters yeah it's it's a day-to-day thing i mean the amount of pressure that these politicians and other ruling class kind of figures are facing i i don't think i've seen a consistent line of of sticking to one particular argument or one particular claim of so-called evidence for more than 48 fucking hours at a time Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, a big part of that is the clumsiness of, of Israeli propaganda, which is just really bad. But but a lot of it is the pressure. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, the pressure is even getting to some of the largest and most centrist national unions. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Becky Pringle, the head of the National Education Association, which is, I believe, the largest union in the United States, uh, tweeted out a call for an end to the violence from her personal account. And this comes after weeks of numerous NEA locals being far ahead of the national organization in calling for a ceasefire. This has been the case in the AFT as well. Um, The national organization still has yet to officially sign the ceasefire demand, but getting the president of the union to to tweet this out, that's like clearly the pressure from inside the union is having an effect. And again, this is the biggest union in the United States. So like... Basically, like this is the actual good version of you. If you're still, if you're in line to vote, if you're if you're still protesting, keep protesting because the shit is fucking working. That's right. That's right. And, and so you know, as the horrors of Israel's assault on Gaza cannot remain hidden from the world, eventually, and this is like, the point that Adam Johnson has been hammering over and over again, and it's an important one. Eventually, every liberal organization will claim to have been against this genocide the entire time. The question is when. 
not if these organizations will claim to have been against the ongoing genocide. And so the, the more pressure that we apply now, the faster that shift will happen. Yeah. And I mean, to talk about what is an up and coming like kind of catastrophe, I wouldn't say that it's exactly the same in the in the situation of genocide, but we are seeing the rise of fascism in uh, the South American country of Argentina, where listeners might be aware that they elected a new president, Javier Malay, who calls himself an anarcho-capitalist and has promised to make sweeping reforms to Argentina's economy. And I mean, he himself uh, has referred to this process as shock therapy. And if any anyone knows anything about the history of that term it's bad it's very uh, bad <laughs> yeah. and then we've come full circle because it's going back to where it started yeah yeah well, and also like in the hands of a guy who is basically a venture brothers parody of a cartoon supervillain, and may yes. for all we know be a, gem- a genetic clone of a high-ranking ss officer <laughs> <laughs> yeah like this is malay is like the the crystallization of the end result of 50 years of Operation Contour. Do you know how many dead Juan Guaido's had to be discarded in basement <laughs> furnaces to generate one functional Javier Malay? And, and, <laughs> and functional is in big quotes. Yeah, scare quotes. Yeah. <laughs> so he wants to privatize as much of the state as possible, roll back labor rights, ban all protests against his mass theft of public assets. And I mean, if this program sounds familiar, uh, is probably because you might have studied a little bit about uh, Chile during the Allende years, uh, because this is uh, a program that seems very similar to that of Augusto Pinochet, who, you know, obviously, with the help of the CIA, overthrew Allende's democratically elected socialist government. And It's so funny, like, Alan Dulles left a handwritten note in one desk drawer in one CIA office, and the the whole organization has been running off of that for, like, (laughs) 70 years. He has the exact same program, really. Well, especially because I'm all... The other thing that's funny about this, too, though, is it's like these same ghouls then rolled out shock therapy in the former Soviet Union. They killed Mm -hmm. millions of people in the process and destroyed the accomplishments of decades and decades of of vital work. Uh, But that also didn't, for the most part, succeed in most of those countries in turning them into slaves of the United States like they wanted it to. In a couple of cases it did, but even still that took multiple like color revolutions and other various interventions. But they still just, they keep rolling out this same thing, being like, oh no, we're going to do full throttle, like uh, like unhidden, like capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's it's, But it's just like, okay, but you already know what's going to happen when you do that. The people are going to fight back. And also now the people have seen what happens when you do that. So like, it's not a mystery. It's not, this is a new thing. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like yeah. people can see what's coming from this. So like, you're just going to get more and more reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what they've gotten. I mean, with our Argentinian work. Uh, workers, the Argentine working class, uh, not taking this lying down, where Malai has uh, issued a series of decrees attempting to impose his program of sweeping privatization and attacks on labor without, you know, going through the legislature, this so-called, quote, degree, decree of necessity and urgency, end quote, uh, which unilateral, uh, ended up unilaterally firing 7,000 public workers, and the decree included an end to the automatic pension increases, uh, added a restrictive, uh, a massive restriction on the right to strike, 
like the easing away of any price caps for private health services, just all sorts of awful things. I mean, he also ordered the police to break up any of the many, many protests that have been going on under the justification of, quote, allowing free movement, end quote. And And, and I mean, I just want to I just want to jump in here like. When you hear people complain about protests blocking highways with the what if what if there was an ambulance and you block the ambulance? This is the same thing. This is the exact same thing just put into practice. Because mm-hmm. again, this is like what this is what fascists are doing now. Like it's the same thing when you had Joe Biden crushing the rail strike. It was we can't do this. What about the economy? What mm-hmm. if the, there's a rail strike and you can't get medicine to the other side of the country? What about that? You didn't think of that, did you? Well, and like it's it's so obvious because where does Millet come from? He was an economist from the Austrian school, which is basically Ludwig von Mises camp. Who was von Mises before he was an economist? He was economic advisor to Austrofascist Engelbert Dolphus. <laughs> it's a very clear line from like early 20th century fascism to what we're seeing right now in Argentina. It's there's no subterranean element involved. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, I, and I mean, I, if they really cared about those things that Dan was pointing out, then maybe people wouldn't be going without medicine in the first place when uh, some of those resources are available. But no, now they need to be, you know, privatized and put in the hands of people who will then restrict those health benefits even more. I mean, the whole point of this is to make it so that in the future, those sorts of things are not possible. But that's not well, their and, interest. And these kind of arguments also go along with the whole it's the whole thing in New neoliberalism where you try and it's it's this like reification of technocracy it's this idea that all the actions of the government are simply a reaction to natural forces they have they're not directed by any individual and no one can ever be at fault they are simply Mm -hmm. a they're they're an autonomic response in this so this is just like we're not crushing the protests of the left because i hate workers and want my you know my rich friends who own businesses to make more money we're ensuring free movement (laughs) like no but that's the thing because that's like that's a big that's like one of the biggest contributions of neoliberalism is that it's it's a way of cloaking largely fascist policies in this sort of anodyne uh decontextualized manner that makes it just seem as if it's a natural response of the state also with his claim that he's a quote-unquote anarcho-capitalist uh really also shows the necessity of the state in or, that whole process and the pure idealism involved in it yeah i mean the the, the one kind of anarchists who are like more cops <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, this doesn't seem like it goes with all the rest of the anarchists. <laughs> it certainly doesn't. Uh, I mean, the government, uh, to get back to what we were talking about, the government is also threatened to cut off anyone who protests from social and state or state social programs. And Malay's uh, minister of security, Patricia Bullrich, declared, quote, Bullrich. He who blocks the street does not get paid, end quote, which uh, really just like you can it's what a what a way of creating a newly uh, or an extension of the carceral society for for the you know working people who need the benefits and also work for the benefits and also like 
your society will not function without it. Regardless, marchers were also forbidden from carrying sticks uh, or covering their faces or having any children at the protests. Oh, cool. So they want to be able to, like, just shoot you with guns and not have international media say that they shot at children. Great. Wonderful. I I love the restriction on bringing kids to the protest because it's one of those ones that it's like, it it's it is it's it it it's quintessential again of 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 neoliberal talk speak because in the media when you're working within the ISA it it's easy you throw it out there look if people insist on coming out into the street we can't have kids getting hurt and then media pundit who has the same class interest as you is like oh yes no that makes sense that's reasonable blah 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 and then they portray that as what they're saying but what but there's never the obvious question who's making it dangerous. Is, Exactly. Why would the streets be dangerous for kids? Who's putting them in? Oh, it's you. It's you're threatening them is Mm -hmm. really what you're saying. (laughs) But they again, because they're going within their own state media circles, there's no no one ever asks that question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, And it also it it really puts the lie to the whole uh, anything about what anarcho capitalism is supposed to be, except for the capitalism part, I suppose, in that it's just a reskin of fascism. It's like, how are we going to make our society freer? Well, you can't protest, you can't demonstrate, you can't criticize me, and if you do any of those things, you can't fucking eat either. Congratulations on your freedom. (laughs) Right. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, and then we have a quote here from the General Labor Confederation, which issued a statement on the decree saying, quote, uh, it introduces a ferocious, repressive labor reform whose only purpose is to hamstring union activity, punish workers, and benefit business interests, end quote, which is exactly what we're outlining right here. Yeah, it took me way more words to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and so on Wednesday, December 27th, unions across industries held major protests in the capital of Buenos Aires, the General Confederation of Labor, the CGT, uh, both Workers Central Union of Ar- Argentina, CTA, and the Association of State Workers, ATE, Frente Patria Grande, uh, and other left parties brought tens of thousands into the streets to resist this attempt to restore fascism in Argentina. With the general secretary, general secretary, the <laughs> general secretary of the Public Workers Union, uh, Rodolfo Aguiar, saying, quote, no one expects us to accept a single layoff. If the government moves forward with these layoffs, workers and their families will be directly affected. But indirectly, the entire community will be affected. In the state, any dismissal translates into a loss of rights for all our people, end quote. And, I mean, it's so good to see all of these labor, uh, you know, these labor unions and and left parties stand up against this fucking terrible, terrible, just terrible regime. Well, and I think this highlights something really important, too, which is that in economies that have been ravaged by various waves of fascism and military dictatorship like Argentina, a lot of times state jobs are kind of like one of the last places where people from various communities can kind of feel secure that they're going to be able to provide for the people around them. And this move to to gut these kinds of jobs, these kinds of programs is like maybe more than almost anything else he could do besides going out into the street with guns, a direct attack on the civilian population of the country, you know, of Argentina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I well, mean, l- look, aftershock therapy was applied in the former Soviet Union. Russia experienced the biggest drop in life expectancy mm-hmm. in peacetime in history. Mm-hmm. It, it literally killed millions of people. Now, Argentina is much smaller 
But like that's this that's the sort of attack on the economic livelihood of the people that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean the protests themselves were entirely peaceful, despite you know the severity of the legislative assault on the rights of the Argentine working class, and despite the police attacks that happened on smaller groups of workers leaving uh, at the end of the protests and the arrest of. Others, okay, so at the end of these protests, there was people filming the incidents of pr- police brutality, and the fucking police arrested them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Damn, wonder where they got that idea from. Huh. <laughs> I, where, yeah. where are we seeing that? I, where were we just talking about it before? This, yes, co- of course we were. Yeah, and, we're, well, we're in the middle of the deadliest war for journalists in mm-hmm. the history of the world, I think. And um, uh, who's committing that again? I forget. Is it that those people that Javier Malay hates so much? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, like, and to talk about the this, the, the Buenos Aires press union, Sabreba, said, quote, we condemn the police operation. It turned into repression and assaults on press workers. We demand that all individuals be released, end quote. And I, I expect that this is not, I mean, if they do get released, it's going to be only under pressure from the public. And even then, there's going to be even more press repression from the state coming in, you know, the, the future, because I, I think that this is the kind of guy who is like, I get my way uh, or or nothing else. Well, this is the kind of guy who gets his notes handed to him directly from the same CIA office that hands them right. out to Benjamin well, Netanyahu. <laughs> and I think this is the sort of thing, like Malay's election and this sort of thing, I think is something that can be difficult for a lot of folks if you haven't dug into the history of the region because mm-hmm. like him and also with like um, groups like the AFD, in in Germany, because people will point to be like, well, these groups are getting a lot of electoral support. Like, it's not just that they have like the the like obviously their class base is in the monopoly capitalism. They, they don't even really hide that. <laughs> but you know, like there there's a significant number of people who voted for them. Malay did win. Like he did legitimately win the Argentinian presidential election by quite a bit over the uh, person he was running against. And so people be like, oh man, the the people of Argentina are just so right wing. And it's like, no. It's that the people of Argentina have been given horrible options. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is why you have to dig into the history. Because it's like, well, what are the options they were given? Has Argentina had decades and decades, perhaps 100 years, to develop a vibrant left-wing movement that can you know, organically grow from the world? Oh, no. A lot of those people were assassinated by the CIA, by the military government that ran the dirty war there for decades at the direction and support of the United States. And that happened all over Latin America. It happened all over the Middle East during the mm-hmm. 70s, uh, like during this period. And so you ended up with like the or the like indigenous organic left movements that obviously arose in response to these that could provide a real alternative, that could provide an actual electoral path to socialism in every opportunity. The United States murdered those people. Yeah. And so what the people have been left with is this shitty, lukewarm centrism uh, that doesn't get you anywhere. Or all of these fucking the von Mises creatures that, that, that are coming out of the woodwork being like, yeah, my, my, my recipe makes no sense and is horrible, but it's something different. 
Yeah, well, and it's it's like that tweet where you see like South American election puppies for everyone, fifty one percent grandson of a literal Nazi, forty nine percent, and it's like this is every election except in Argentina it's even worse because it was a successful colonial project. So it's like Javier Malay, sixty percent Peronism, forty percent. <laughs> right. Like, well, where where were you supposed to turn in that election? Everything sucks. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, I think we're going to keep seeing uh, this. Argentina is going to be a big point of struggle. But like another place that's been a big point of worker struggle all over the world, uh, you know, has been uh, a little more specific. One company, in fact, mm-hmm. Tesla. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we've covered their awful working conditions there plenty of times on our show. Obviously, the ongoing strike by Scandinavian Tesla workers has been a big story. But, you know, as the UAW's drive to organize all the non-union automakers in the United States, including, of course, Tesla, it's worth underlining again, I think, how bad things are there. And there was a recent story uh, that came out of the Daily Mail, which I understand the Daily Mail is not really a news source and is basically just a rag, but I did check their sources and other things. Well, you know, also with the state of American journalism, a lot of really good journalists have to work for rags if they want to do the stories they want to do. (laughs) Yeah. And and this is actually, it's interesting. This isn't really a new story. This is more something that they were were kind of like just digging in, doing some investigative Mm -hmm. journalism for once, actually going digging into some government reports because this recent story is highlighting an incident from 2021 at at Tesla's Texas Gigafactory where an engineer was struck and pinned in place by an automated robot with enough force that actually draw drew blood where the uh the like claws on the robot now i will say this is where the daily mail's rag nature came in they really sensationalized this a lot this is bad but they were like the robot tried to eat him <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like no, I can't <laughs> do that. Just Dave. Bad safety protocols, <laughs> and the company doesn't care about its workers. Yeah, yeah. The robot is not coming alive. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was bad enough that like he couldn't move. He was stuck in place by the robot, and the robot was using enough force that it was actually breaking the skin, and and he and caused him to lose some blood it, and left a, a an open wound on the engineer's hand. Thankfully, another worker there saw what was happening, hit an emergency stop button to free the engineer. But these are the sorts of accidents that with proper safety training and protocols should be more or less impossible. That's another thing I think is always important to underline on the show. When you hear about industrial accidents, a lot of times those aren't really accidents. Those are things that could have been prevented, but the company was too fucking cheap. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is another one of those things. And the only reason we even found out about this case is because Tesla's required to submit injury reports to state authorities in Texas to get its massive taxpayer subsidies handed out by the state government. However, Hannah Alexander of the Workers' Defense Project told the Daily Mail, quote, We've had multiple workers who are injured and one worker who died, whose injuries or deaths are not in these reports that Tesla is supposed to be accurately completing and submitting to the county in order to get tax incentives. So when we talk about how any of the worker deaths or injuries are, you know, see those lists and like the numbers that are honestly way too high, uh, absurdly high and how they are always undercounts this itself is a great you know micro example of that Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i mean we have previously on the show discussed the the death that that she's talking about of construction worker antelmo ramirez who died from heat stroke while building the gigafactory and uh, not being given enough break time and and the fact that texas is extremely dangerous for workers um uh actually i'll talk about that in a second but um 
And in addition, but in addition to his death, the Workers' Defense Project has also filed complaints on behalf of workers who were given no training at all, and in fact given false safety certificates claiming, claiming that they had completed training they were never given. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. That's one of those times, like, you know, I always think I'm going to stop being surprised on this show. And, and it's, it's stuff that you kind of, I think, if you think it through, you would expect from an organization like Tesla. But it's just like handing out the fake certificates, man. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's toddler shit. That's playing house, trying to get your parents to play along with your imagination game level of nonsense. Like, it's not even... It would be one thing if it was like a 15-minute seminar and they made you chuck your name at the... But to just hand out, like, you're trained mm-hmm. now. Yeah, That's disgusting. Well, yeah. This is why that the the uh, companies cannot be trusted with these sort of certifications uh, at all and that the unions should be administrating this, uh, I mean, at the very least under a capitalist system. Yeah, and so s- since... Uh, you know, Tesla obviously also has operations in California. They have been investigated by California state OSHA, which found that the company routinely failed to submit required documentation of injuries, refusing to report at least 36 injuries in 2018 in California alone. Uh, and even with their reported injuries, the company's reported injury rate of one in every 21 workers is much worse than the one in 38 worker industry median. And the real numbers, now that we know that they're just routinely not submitting reports, are assuredly even worse. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of concrete numbers to go off of here to try to calculate what their real injury rate might be. But just like off of vibes, I'm going to say one in five. (laughs) I mean, very possible. But and, and this is all happening at the same time that, you know, Tesla received over 60 million dollars in tax breaks, basically handouts from Travis County in Texas for locating their gigafactory there. And the right-wing state government has generally cared very little about the lives of workers. Texas is the deadliest state for construction workers by far, who are 22% more likely to die on the job there than in any other state. Which is, of course, precisely why Tesla chose to build their factory in Texas. Not because, of course, you know, they're, they want to kill people on their their job site unless perhaps building a gigafactory is some sort of dark ritual which i won't <laughs> leave out the possibility of i suppose but it's because you know the workers lives are cheap there they don't have to pay for safety they don't actually have to worry about how many people come home from the job site every day and oh the same reason david byrne likes filming in texas so much mm-hmm, exactly and so but thankfully of course in the wake of the you know, huge historic victory by the UAW over the big three and the stand-up strike. The union has launched a major organizing campaign there. And uh, in response, the company recently announced that Tesla workers will receive raises of 10% or more as they are trying to stave off that organizing drive. But this story, the injuries and all of this awful bullshit at Tesla really just emphasizes how important it is that Tesla is unionized <laughs> because like working in autom- auto plants in general around automated machinery uh, is difficult. It's dangerous work as we talked about at length during the big three strike uh, and, and corporate owned politicians though have no interest in using laws to uh, enforce improved conditions. Uh, but since the UAW has made the big three a comparatively safer place to work, 
the more automakers are unionized, the more leverage all auto workers will have to force the bosses to provide a safe workplace. And so I just, you know, I think as we look forward to 2024, this is the sort of thing to keep in mind about like what the stakes are for the the stand up mm-hmm. uh, organizing drive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, on our docket, we do have yet another Teamsters story to to bring to everybody's attention. So the Teamsters are not just organizing in the industries that you might expect them to be, but they're also organizing in some rather fun industries, such as beer. With the renewal of the Teamsters fighting spirit following the major wins of this year of 2023, workers at Anheuser-Busch are preparing to bring that fight into the next year, 2024. So on December 16th, the 5,000 Teamsters across the 12 breweries of the company at Anheuser-Busch voted 99% to authorize a strike. This is not only significant due to the, again, 99% approval, but also because the contract itself doesn't expire until February 29th. So, (laughs) um, wait a minute. Oh, right. Next year is the leap year. I was not understanding this the first time I read it, and I still wasn't understanding it now. So the contract actually expires on a day that doesn't even normally exist on the calendar in the coming year, but it is coming <laughs> yeah. up. It's February 29th. You're so understanding amount- my notes now. Yeah, finally. So this <laughs> amount of time will allow the workers at Anheuser-Busch to do the sorts of preparations that we saw back during the UPS contract fight. And as of the authorization, it was announced that the current negotiations have secured an end to tiered health care benefits and a restoration of retiree health benefits. The company, however, was using delay tactics when it comes to job security uh, that workers are demanding. There originally weren't any more bargaining sessions scheduled, but upon the announcement of the strike authorization, the company quickly set up another session for the 18th, where the company <laughs> says that they Funny started that bargaining happens. on those issues. The next session is scheduled for January 8th. Clearly, the strike authorization has scared the company into action, which again, and I've said it twice already, it was a 99% strike authorization. (laughs) I was joking multiple episodes in a row on this show about how they seem to keep getting higher and that we're going to have nowhere left to go but 100 soon. (laughs) And we're already there. We've already painted ourselves into the three-digit corner. (laughs) Who will be the first, like, over 1,000 unit bargaining... uh, group to actually have a 100% strike authorization. You know, I'm just waiting for I'm just waiting for when, you know, we have like a let's say even a 99% approval, but then some of the non-union workers are just like, "Hey, no, we're we're in on this too." And suddenly we're at 102%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have somehow a 107% strike authorization vote. The folks from the store next door who aren't even in our union came over and voted in favor. It was great. <laughs> So while the conservative boycott of Anheuser-Busch products did affect sales, uh, that was that whole uh, Bud Light thing, Uh (laughs) I think. So they used that as an excuse to lay off 2% of their workforce. Um, Despite that, the beer maker announced $1 billion in stock buybacks to benefit their wealthy investors. Oh, and as of September's earnings call, the company announced a nearly 4% year-over-year revenue increase, putting their income at $59.5 billion. Uh, Oh, damn. That boycott sure did a whole lot. People continue to buy beer. <laughs> yeah, who well, would have I mean, fucking guessed? <laughs> well, I mean, and for just a little perspective on that, on the effect of the transphobic bo- boycott in the previous year, it said they said that uh, the year-over-year increase in revenue was six point four percent. So really, not even a huge loss due to the boycott. I mean, two percent year-over-year, and well, just for I mean, that, and, that's nothing to them. 
and that's isn't also Bud Light like, still the most take, popular beer in the country? <laughs> yeah. And that's also taking them on their word that that's not just some random fucking fluctuation in the market or their business practices, and then it did actually have something to do with the boycott, which I kind of don't believe because Americans are like the kind of consumers where they see something and they're like, oh, that's being boycotted. Thanks. I've heard about it again now, which is how marketing works. Like, <laughs> no offense well, to people well, who are legitimately trying to boycott things, but I just kind of don't believe business owners when they're like, man, the boycott really hurts sales like no it well, didn't it had uh-huh, zero no. effect well and because when it does like the the way that the boycott of starbucks maybe not entirely in the u.s but in a lot of other mm-hmm. countries around the world be right right now because of their support of of zionism has made a real impact in a lot of countries in a major way and starbucks has done a real big amount of work to not talk about that mm-hmm. at all so again, that's the thing. It's like when a, a boycott is actually successful, they try and make it seem like it's not. So if they're being open about a boycott supposedly being successful, it's probably because it wasn't really an actual boycott and it's just a, some, a political cause they already agreed with and wanted to use as an excuse to slash their workforce. Once again, the assume they're lying axiom <laughs> <laughs> is very productive. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like, look, this is another reason why class analysis is important because when I'm reading a worker's publication i could be generally assumed that it's correct mm-hmm. and when i'm reading something from the bosses i can generally assume that they are lying uh-huh right. so sean o'brien somebody that we can generally assume is correct said quote if anheuser-busch's executives can't get their act together to negotiate an agreement that respects workers we will see them out on the streets end quote which doesn't actually sound so much like an assessment of the situation but a promise <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, look, if folks follow the Teamsters on, on social media, they have been very clear about this. I'm going to be honest, it almost seems like Sean O'Brien is excited to strike Anheuser Bush. So, right. Uh, I would probably come back to the table if I was them, especially mm-hmm. a 99% <laughs> strike vote. Like, look, yeah, I'm sure you can go round up a bunch of idiots off the street who are like, I'll scab, I want to make beer. They're not going to have the skills oh, to do well, what these workers do every day. And uh, also, I mean, I got the uh, the announcement of more uh, bargaining dates actually from the company itself because mm-hmm. they were like, no, 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 <laughs> we're not being intransigent. No, 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 no trust, trust, look at this. Look at this. We actually have a date here and here now. Look at that. Yeah. We did it. <laughs> Please don't put Sean O'Brien in our homes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, in news that should surprise no one, the uh, to move to our next story, the NLRB has ruled that Trader Joe's in Hadley, Massachusetts, illegally fired an 18-year veteran of the store, Stephen Andrade, uh, for organizing. The reason that Trader Joe's fired him was because he had left a power saw for making signs in the back of the store after being told to remove it back in June. The ruling <laughs> states that uh, Stephen should be reinstated and given back pay. But a little bit more context to this. The company said that having power tools in the store is against policy, but the saw did not even belong to Stephen and existed in the store before he transferred there nearly a decade ago why do you have a store policy against having power tools in the store because every trader joe's is 
<laughs> Every Trader Joe's is constructed exactly the same way as a tiki bar, and you can put it together <laughs> with hand tools, no problem. Well, I'm just like, that's a very specific thing to have a pro. Like, you don't sell power. I'm confused. <laughs> it, it was for making a sign or something like that? I don't know. I'm guessing that they've needed it because the saw has been in the store for a no. decade. I'm not asking why they would have the sto- the tools, a uh, 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 sawzall or whatever this is, is very useful device. But I'm just saying, why in the Trader Joe's company handbook, in between like whether you have to wear your apron or not, and whether you can sit at the cashier, they're like, also, by the way, you can't have any drills. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no idea. But I mean, Steven said uh, that, you know, even though this will take appeals for possibly years, he said, quote, I'm prepared to stick it out for however long, end quote, which shows a real commitment of this veteran worker to, you know, make sure to keep fighting for this union. And and shouts out for that, because like that's looking at the situation with real clarity and not shying away from it, which is really important because that's just something the companies rely on is the idea that they're like, look, we got lawyers forever. We can draw this out for years. You really want to deal with this for years? Yeah, we know we're wrong. Yeah, we'll lose eventually. But do you really want to do this for the next three years? And it's really important that we have workers who are just like, yes, fuck you. (laughs) I'm going to see this through. I don't care how many times you appeal it because they rely on the idea much in the same way companies using um, uh, mail-in rebates do. (laughs) <laughs> they're yeah. not actually going to take them up on it. And somebody has to take them up on it and call their bluff. And so shout outs to to Steven here. Mm-hmm. Well, and then also the ruling stated that Trader Joe's illegally made lower contributions to workers 401k plans to, quote, discourage employees from engaging in their protected rights. Clearly, uh, this is a violation of the law since Trader Joe's enacted these policies unilaterally without bargaining with the union. And Meg Yosef, a spokesperson for the Trader Joe's United uh, Union, said, quote, they acted unlawfully and blamed it on the union. They said that it was our fault that people didn't get this compensation. This was a huge chilling factor for our organizing, end quote. And I mean, as it was meant to be to just say, oh, you've lost benefits and this is definitely the fault of the union when it is explicitly the company who is enacting this. And it happens every single time when the company is like, Oh, you could get lower wages. Oh, you could lose this benefit. Who's mm-hmm. taking those benefits, motherfucker? Mm-hmm. Right. Again, it's the same thing. It's 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 this is like this is the big contribution of 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 neoliberal ideology to repressive forms. It's it's repression without a repressor. It's this 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 bad thing happening to you that happened from the sky, perhaps from karma for you joining a yeah. union, but certainly well, not. There was no agency on our part as your boss the, and exploiter. Mm-hmm. It's the passive voice we see in fucking crime reporting, you know, like suspect yeah. found dead after being struck by bullet that exited gun held by officer. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, on top of all of that, there were new ULPs filed against the company on the 19th of December that the that state that the company was punishing workers for wearing union pins, button claws alert, telling them that they would lose raises if they organized literally the thing that I just mentioned. Uh, I mean, they had also provided these workers with, quote, false and misleading information, end quote, uh, according about the, or about the union, according to the ULPs, which I'm not surprised about. At all, because uh, I mean, what real repercussions are there for a company that just fucking lies? 
Yeah, well, and also, like, of all the companies to try and do button claws shenanigans, really, Trader Joe's? Really? Your work uniform is a flower shirt and acid-washed jeans, and you want to play button <laughs> yeah. claws shenanigans with me right now? I'll destroy you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, yeah, that's just just more power to the Trader Joe's United workers, and I, this the bullshit from the company is obviously not going to slow down, but keep up the fight. Uh, big, big solidarity from us here at Work Stoppage. Yeah, absolutely. So for our final story this week, you know, wanted to close out with some good news. Uh, you know, we've talked a few times about airline pilots on the show. Now they're in a bit of an odd place in the labor market. On the one hand, they're an extremely specialized profession with a limited pool of qualified workers, which on the, gives them decent leverage in negotiations because the pool of available scabs is very small. You're not... You, you put out an ad in Craigslist, it's going to be kind of hard to find a like qualified 747 pilot. <laughs> I scabbed as a pilot once just to make a point. They never found the plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened to MH370. Uh, on the other hand, though, uh, and, and largely because of that former fact, because of the specialization of their labor, their labor is regulated under the Draconian Railway Labor Act which makes legally going on strike an extremely difficult prospect, thus lowering their leverage. So again, it, uh, being an airline pilot and your labor rights and your leverage is a land of contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> and so because of that, pilot negotiations are often contentious because pilots know how valuable their labor is, but also very protracted because of the massive legal advantage that the airline has taking away the incentive for them to settle. And so these are like fierce battles between the workers and the company, but they also go on for a really long fucking time. And as a testament to this fact, this week pilots at Southwest reached a new contract agreement with their pilots, bringing all four of the major airlines, because it's the U.S. and we now only have four major airlines, <laughs> uh, under current collective bargaining agreements. And this agreement, which is great, came after three and a half years of negotiation. That's so long. Uh, way too long. Yeah, I mean, it is it is absolutely ridiculous. And so the Southwest pilots have been holding informational pickets at airports around the country for months as part of building pressure on the airline to sign a new deal. Uh, the new contracts won by the pilots at American, United, and Delta earlier this year one raises of an average of 8% per year over five years or 40% total. So very significant uh, uh, raises that were negotiated there. And union officials at Southwest say that delays at the bargaining table at that company actually started to lead to a major loss of pilots at Southwest because, you know, the workers are just looking like, well, uh, y'all fly the same planes, <laughs> as American United and Delta, but they just got a big ass raise and you guys won't give a shit. So I'm going to go fly for them. <laughs> Classic. Uh, and so that added to the pressure, you know, from these pickets, from, from the actions of the pilots. And so, uh, that helped them win this new deal. And so according to the Southwest airline pilots association, uh, SWAPA, uh, they say that the new deal is worth $12 billion for its 11,000 members. According to Reuters, the new deal con it contains the new deal contains an immediate 29% pay increase to compensate for the last 3.5 years without raises, followed by 4% raises per year after that. The deal also includes flying schedule improvements to protect against last-minute reassignments, 
better disability coverage, improve vacation, and increases to retirement benefits. And so Southwest pilots will now vote on whether to approve the deal ahead of a final decision in a couple of weeks on January 22nd. Uh, but And so while this will get all the pilots, assuming that the, it passes, which in considering the big raises, I would imagine it will, um, that that will settle all of the pilots' negotiations for now. But contentious negotiations are still ongoing at several airlines, including Southwest, for flight attendants who, re- who rejected a proposed tentative agreement earlier in December. And since the AFA is led by, you know, militant, uh, union leader Sarah Nelson, uh, I imagine that though the flight attendants at Southwest will also be winning a <laughs> record contract uh, because they're not going to go back for anything less. Editor's note, the actual union that is represented by these flight attendants is the Transport Workers of America Union. Yeah, I, I mean, like, the ability for these companies to be so intransigent is just... Uh, mind-boggling and really mm-hmm. shows the absolute like depravity of the the railway labor act the real like yeah. anti-labor railway act right <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah it's it's fucked fuck the railway labor act mm-hmm. yeah it's uh we th- that's the kind of shit that we got to get rid of and more of an example of how undemocratic our system is But an example of how democratic our system is, as the (laughs) listeners have demanded, we have continued this segment called the Meme Review for years now, leading into 2024. And here's the one from this episode. Hell yeah. (laughs) Before we get into the Meme Review, actually, if I was quiet for the last few minutes of recording, it's just because I'm in a different room of my house than usual, and some guy in a pickup truck pulled up in front of my house with his hazards on and got out and picked up a bunch of stuff that had fallen out of the back of his truck because it's like open (laughs) it's not covered and put it back in the back of his truck and then drove away and i'm just like mr like does he think that's not gonna fall right back out again (laughs) (laughs) that's my real life meme for the meme review (laughs) just happened to me now uh, I was wondering well, what you were looking at. I mean, I, sometimes the y'all see me staring out the window at either giant flocks of birds or trees that are swaying 10 degrees each side, which are just, yeah. yeah. I just, you know, I thought he was going to come up and knock on my door or something, so I like he had my attention. But anyway, uh, yeah, we have memes for you guys today. Um, who is the person in this first meme? I don't know if we're supposed to know who that guy is or if it's just he's the perfect personification of this kind of customer. (laughs) It's Uh, just a very muscular, like maybe kind of roided up bald dude with a bunch of like a a fuzzy goatee and he's got a white t-shirt and a chain. Yeah, probably like 40-ish or so. He looks like he definitely listens to Joe Rogan. Yes. uh, He almost looks like Joe Rogan, honestly. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But also he's in front of this very, very like HOA suburban brick house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm McMansion style house. Uh And so this is a tweet from Shirako Takamoto Enjoyer and it says, quote, I can't believe you guys are open today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the person who is in the store. Yeah. (laughs) Shout outs to all of our service worker listeners, our retail worker listeners, uh, all our UPS driver Mm -hmm. listeners, everybody. I mean, salute to all the logistics workers going through or who just finished up peak 
season because I'm sure everybody involved had to deal with this asshole. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I tell you, I had to make some last minute gift buying um, happen it happen on the day before Christmas this year because that's the day we actually did Christmas. And uh, my strategy was go to gas station, buy large <laughs> bottles of liquor, hand out non-wrapped large bottles of liquor to family. And I managed to cause such little disturbance for the cashier that day. I was very proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. So Do, doing my best not to be the the wretched customer. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. This next one I got a big kick out of. I don't. I think this is a format that was going around. <laughs> I guess, and somebody made this extremely funny one. So this is like I, the format is like a very much like 2014 style deep fried meme mm-hmm. where you've got this uh, stretched and pixelated picture of like. Uh, I don't know, like a 12-year-old kid or like 13-year-old standing there like with his arms crossed in his shorts. And then it starts off with in, in big impact font, shut up, my dad works for, and then it's a format and you can insert all these different things. But for this one, very particular for our show, it's shut up, my dad works for Norfolk Southern and could get your entire town contaminated by toxic chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> that That threat is uh is hilarious i can just imagine a kid on a bus yelling at another kid saying something like that my brother in christ your father was going to do that anyway (laughs) (laughs) well it's also to me though like it's the kid who is always just like yeah well my dad works at nintendo and he says you can't do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah my dad works at nintendo and he says that if you're not nice to me he's going to take captain falcon out of smash (laughs) yes exactly exactly And then our next one is a screenshot of a receipt printer with just loads of paper coming out of it. And uh, it says, point of view, someone put their enti- put the entire Shrek 1 script in the special instructions section of their order. And uh, just, I, I love this because, I mean, as, I mean, though this would possibly be annoying if it wasn't insanely busy, I feel like we would just, like, as the workers start reading the script script this is one of those ones where i feel like you have to know who's going to deal with the problem that you cause if they're going to think it's funny great this is funny if they're not they better be the manager well Mm -hmm. also i feel like there's the potential for this to be a pro worker move and here's why i say that i don't know how this system works but if it works like this if this is the thing where it's like while it's processing one order it can't process other orders so if this is on a day where people usually get slammed and you're like no 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 they're only going to get one order, and it's the Shrek order. That's <laughs> and right. It just like it prevents them from getting swamped with like four hundred horrific drink orders, and they're just like there. <laughs> you don't have to deal with that because my Sh- my Shrek script is blocking all the other orders. <laughs> yeah, always check for character limits on things like that. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's like when the let's game it out guy is like, is there a limit to high how how high we can stack these things? <laughs> Just yeah. stress testing people's employers in various ways. So the next one, this is a this is a three panel that is uh, screenshots from the end of uh, actually no, not the end from uh, the beginning. I Men in Black of Men in Black, uh, and it's 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 when uh, when Will Smith is trying to decide whether he really should take up Tommy Lee Jones on the offer and, and join the Men in Black, <laughs> but it's it's modified a bit for our labor context. So you've got what are those like rainbow shades? The, the pit vipers, wraparounds. I, yeah, I think, but all, specifically, all fancy sunglasses are Ray Bans to me. It says, oh, it says pit I'm, viper I'm, on I'm, it. I don't know that those are fancy. I think they're like 
fifteen dollar gas station sunglasses. Oh, I just but, mean if they if they have any colors in them besides like tint, <laughs> I do not know what they are <laughs> because those yeah, are for so, anime oh, anyway, supervillains, so, and you look ridiculous in them. So Will Smith's <laughs> got these giant rainbow pit vipers uh, uh, photoshopped onto his face, and is labeled "My Apprentice." And it's when the hall asks you to be steward on the job, is it worth it? And then looking at Tommy Lee Jones with the the IBEW steward uh, hard hat on, looking back, oh yeah, it's worth it. And then the last one captioned, me going to defend the apprentice that drove a lift through the wall, if you're strong enough. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. We love, big big salute to all of our shop stewards out there. Absolutely, 100%. If you you manage to keep your, your idiot apprentice who... Uh, really didn't pay enough attention on the forklift certification from getting fired, doing the Lord's work. That's right. That's right. And then our final meme for today is, uh, I guess it's not as wholesome as I have tried to put at the end of the uh, episode (laughs) these days, but it's a four panel. And the first one is uh, like, it's a cartoon kind of look to it. And uh, there's this woman in a bikini on a, on a pillow couch or something like that. And it says, click here for NSFW version. And then the worker uh, in the next panel is like, looking sly and clicking and then the third panel is her holding a sign that says unionize and the fourth panel is a boss just screaming just like oh no (laughs) that's not allowed at work basically and uh he's also got a little mug that says boss man on it (laughs) (laughs) which i I just thought i love to have a mug with my exact job role in it like showing up to work and i i drink my coffee out of a mug that says route specialist (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I thought that this one was kind of funny, you know, because nice. it's not safe for work because your boss will be shitty about you unionizing. That's Ironically, right. if you do unionize, it makes everything at work safer. So oh, I don't know. Yeah. There's maybe like a not quite constructed joke in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We are excited to bring you lots of great content in the new year. And if you want all of that content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash work stoppage, where we have all of our awesome bonus content. You'll see that over the holidays, we unlocked the first episode of our ILA series. And uh, there are still six more episodes of that if you become a patron, which is the only way that we get funding for doing this show i mean we put a lot of work into it and honestly there's going to be some really great stuff coming in the year uh also jump in the discord and come hang out with us you don't need to be a patron to do that write us a review somewhere i found out recently that you can actually give five stars on uh spotify if you happen to listen there um which i did not know and then also follow us in all the places the links are at workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everybody what raises the weight